Kia ora koutou and welcome to New Zealand Anesthesia, the podcast linking Aotearoa anaesthetists with what's going on across the motu and beyond. I'm Dr Morgan Edwards, the New Zealand Society of Anaesthetists President, and it is a pleasure to host the NZSA's podcast. Whether you're at work, in your office, on your commute or on your daily walk or run, we hope that you find it an insightful and informative listen. It is a pleasure to have you here today for this, our sixth episode and final one for 2022. Today we are joined by Dr. Rebecca Brinkler, who is a London-trained anaesthetist currently based at Waitamata in Tamaki Makoto. She recently spent two weeks providing anaesthesia on board the Mercy ship whilst it was docked in Dakar in Senegal. Today we are going to talk to her about exactly what that looked like. So thank you so much for joining us today, Becky. Hi, thanks for having me on. So I thought we would start with the basics. What exactly did you do? Um, So as you said, I was providing anaesthesia on the ship for two weeks. Um, The ship is docked at the port in Dakar, which is the capital of Senegal. um, And it provides elective surgical services um, to the population there. Amazing. And when I think of Dakar or Senegal, I just think it's an incredibly long way away from Aotearoa. So what was the process to getting there, both physically, um, <laughs> but, but also from a process point of view? Well, physically, it was uh, four flights and 36 hours. But um, the process before that, uh, I'd, I'd applied to the Mercy Ships charity um, soon after I finished my training. Um, and then there was a bit of a delay because they closed down during COVID, as most things did. Um, and then early in 20, uh, 2022, they contacted me and said that they had um, a slot that they asked, that, could I fill it in Senegal for two weeks? Um, and I could. So um, prior to that, I'd sent in my CV and I'd sent in... Um, references so both professional and uh, personal references and then once they had a slot for me then you sort of go through all the um, occupational health and um, sort of orientation paperwork and things like that and understanding how the system works Um, and then once I arrived they picked me up from an airport and took me to the ship and I had a couple of days of orientation before I started working clinically as well so it was a really nice sort of slowly eased me into the Mm. situation. And how did it work with funding? Did you fund yourself to get there? Yeah, so it's a voluntary work, so you don't get paid for being there. And and actually, usually Mm -hmm. they ask you to pay crew fees. And depending on how long you're there, your crew fees differ. So the longer you're there, the the smaller your crew fees are per week. Um, Mm -hmm. But actually, this year, they'd waived the crew fees because I think they were trying to get people to come back after COVID. Um, but my, I needed to pay for myself to get there, which I, um, was able to use my CME funding for that. Um, oh, fantastic. And yeah, and they do, they're really good cause they, they, the finance department got in touch with me and, you know, for a lot of people, they're going for much longer and, and actually the finance can be a bit more difficult cause you're not getting income from home and you're there for a long time and you've got fees to pay. So they do help you with, um, charity fundraising um if you need it but um but yeah as I said I was able to use my CME so it was it was relatively simple for me and then was the you know your local department supportive of it was it difficult from that point of view or what was the process there 
Um, so from that side, again, that that was actually pretty straightforward. So um, it, it was a bit last minute when they offered me the slot. So I, I sort of hurriedly asked around for people to cover my on-call shifts, which they did. Everyone was very helpful and lovely and helped out with that. Um, mm. And I was, again, able to use a sort of mixture of annual leave and CME leave to go. Um, so it was it was a pretty straightforward process. That's so delightful to hear. Um, don't we have an amazing department so supportive in those sort of we situations, do. but especially with the things <laughs> that you're doing there? Yeah, it was very, very good. Everyone was lovely at helping out. What was your day-to-day like when, I mean, from sort of start to finish, like where were you staying, where were you eating, and then what was your work day like? Um, so everyone stays on the ship. So the whole, the ship is like a village. So there's the hospital floor and then there's a whole load of accommodation floors and every other service that you think you could need for life is there. Um, so I was sharing a cabin with, um, one of the crew nurses. And so you get up in the morning and we had a, we had a little ensuite bathroom in our, in our cabin. And then the you go up to the main kitchens and they provide you with three meals a day. So and there's set times for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Um, and then the theatres run from eight till five, Monday to Friday. So it's all pretty civilized. Um, they would start the day with a, uh, a whole team briefing in the theatre corridor, um, and it sort of varied each day what happened with that briefing. So some days someone was doing a reflective talk. Other days it was notices and admin. Other days it was sort of welcomes and goodbyes to people who were coming and going. Um, and then once that whole team briefing had finished, you did a small briefing with your particular theatre team in your theatre. Um, and then you got on with your daily list. Um, your patients were all brought in the night before onto the ward. So you went to see them the night before and wrote up your pre-op orders and fasting instructions and used the um, local interpreters to do your consent. Um, and so then on the day, they would just come through into theatre one at a time. Um, after we finished at five, we had an on-call roster. Uh, so there were three anaesthetists. So we had a one in three roster. So someone always stayed on the ship. But if you weren't on-call, you could go into town, you could go for dinner, um, get to see some of Dakar. And did you do that? Did you go off the ship and have a look around and spend some time? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Dakar was a great town. There's some amazing restaurants and nice bars to go to, great markets. It was brilliant. Had a great time. And I was lucky enough to have a little bit of extra annual leave afterwards. So once I finished, I got to do a little bit of traveling around the country before I tackled the long flight home. <laughs> yeah, I bet. And what what language is spoken? I'm assuming English, unless you're fluent in another language that I don't know about. <laughs> Well, no, so, so Dakar, uh, Senegal used to be a French colony. So the, the um, mm. most people who've been through education speak French, uh, which I don't. Yeah. Um, thankfully, Mercy mm-hmm. Ships is an American charity. So the, the language on the ship is English. Yes. <laughs> um, Great. Good. So in the operating room, you could speak the language of the people. <laughs> yes. Yes. So we were all speaking English. And then they have lots of local Great. staff who act as interpreters for the for the patients because there's a lot of um, individual uh, local languages that are spoken as well as French. Yeah, amazing. Um, and then just tell me about your patients briefly. Like where were they coming from? Were they um, all Senegalese or were they coming from sort of the broader region? So the majority were Senegalese. Um, there's a few that sort of crossed 
the border from more distant countries and come into Senegal. But the Mercy Ships does move around the region. So um, so mostly it was just people coming from Senegal, um, but from throughout the entire country. So they the charity works with the government for a few years beforehand, before the ship arrives, and get all the referrals of patients and do all their pre-op planning um, so that they've really got their theatre lists planned before the ship arrives. Um, so then the patients that were coming in, they they set up accommodation in the city so that they can come from afar mm. and stay nearby um, and be prepared for their surgery. And what sort of cases were you doing? Did it vary day to day? Um, so they, they have... Um, they have a huge range of different surgeons coming in and they tend to do types of surgery in blocks. So when I was there, we were doing max facts and general and a little bit of plastics because that's the surgeons that we had. But they do also do orthopedics and gynae and eye surgery as well. Um, and it just changes week by week, depending which surgeons are there. And, and then they plan when to bring those patients according to when they know the surgeons are coming in. And how much of a say did you get in sort of what you would be doing when you were there and, you know, the, the day-to-day sort of thing? So when I first applied, they uh, they asked me what my skills were and how happy I was at certain skills, um, what specialties I would be happy working with, and also what periods of the year I was available. Um, so you really can make sure that you're absolutely comfortable with what you're doing okay that sounds fantastic and what was the most rewarding thing it sounds like there's just so many different elements to it what yeah what did you find the most rewarding um it's really hard to say but I think just the two things really the 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 way that I you're working with these complete strangers from all over the world um and it all just works and it just felt great you just felt like everyone knew what they're doing you felt like you knew what you were doing and and actually everything just worked and went to plan amazingly and then the other side of it is actually seeing these patients who've been waiting years and years to get these surgeries or didn't even really know Mm. that their problem could be fixed with surgery and they come in and have an operation Mm. and and then they're fixed and just seeing the the delight for them and their families at, at being cured is is great yeah absolutely um and then what, I guess the flip side of that question is, what was the most challenging element of it all? Um, I think I found the, the most challenging thing was sort of being dropped into this strange environment. And and as the surgeons and anaesthetists tend to just be there for two weeks, whereas the nursing staff and all the other allied health are there for much longer periods, sort of three months or more. So you're sort of dropped into this right. team that already know each other very well. Um, and it's quite quite daunting and sort of trying to navigate that but actually that passed quite quickly because of the way the team was set up and I think probably the the types of people that are doing this they were just incredibly welcoming and incredibly um, open and helpful and helping you settle in so it it sort of yeah that, that fear passed quite quickly. And I guess, like you're saying, because they are there for much longer periods of time, they're used to there being a new anaesthetist and a new oh, yeah. surgeon. And obviously everybody yeah. wants it to be such a smooth and good environment that they're so motivated to make you feel welcome and part of the team really quickly. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And it, and it's really well set up for that high turnover. So there's a lot of protocols, sort of post-op pain protocols that you follow because the 
PACU nurses don't want to be having to deal with a different anaesthetist's plan every week. So, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> um, so you sort of follow a lot of those protocols, but they're really used to people coming in and going, I don't know how we do this. How do you normally do this? And just helping and being wonderfully supportive. Yeah, cool. What motivated you to do it in the first place? Um, I think ever since I was a student, I've always been um, interested in sort of low resource medicine and, and global health. And I think I've always felt that I've just been lucky to be born in a country where I can have access to any healthcare that I need whenever I need it. And I feel slightly that I have a responsibility to use my skills to in mm. in a useful way to help people who aren't that lucky because it's 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 just luck it's nothing there's nothing I've done that means I have earned that healthcare when you look at the data there's there's a huge lack of surgical services and it it causes more deaths than HIV and um TB and malaria and there's tons of support for those diseases but there's a huge lack of support for surgical conditions um, there's about 17 million deaths a year in the world from lack of access to surgery. Talking to Wayne Morris, who you know is the WFSA president, and talking about how WHO has highlighted this inequity of surgical access as being sort of a, one of the critical areas where we need development um, and exactly what you're saying, that it's just such a crisis that is completely not, historically has not been acknowledged um, as really being a thing. No, you don't. You don't get the same um, sort of uh, charity and, and fundraising no. um, awareness for surgery as you do for infectious diseases. Um, so there's about there's five billion people in the world that don't have access to safe, affordable surgery, which is just really an embarrassment, really, isn't it? And then so to specifically look at Senegal from what you saw, um, what do you think are some of the health challenges that they're facing um, where somebody like yourself and, uh, you know, visiting international anaesthetists or other medical professionals can really make a difference? So Senegal, compared to a lot of countries that are struggling, actually has a very stable government and it's a very stable region. But similar to to most of the other countries surrounding it it has um a lack of resources a lack of infrastructure a huge lack of trained skilled professionals um so it just means that people who need surgery can't can't get there it takes them days to get to a hospital when they get to a hospital that the facilities there aren't good enough and there's just not enough people to treat them and so i think the way that we can do something about that is partly by providing a surgical service. So, I, you know, we can go in, we can we can work in a theatre and, and do operations, and that fixes the surgeries that need to be done that day, but there is still a huge amount that needs to be done. And the other thing that, um, that I really liked about Mercy Ships is that they also have an education component. So they do a huge amount in the... They, they work with the country for two or three years either side of when the ship is there, um, and they do lots of capacity building and lots of training and education of doctors and nurses and sterilizing staff and everything you can think of that goes with a hospital. Um, and they also do lots of work with the government to help with developing policy and, and improving the way that their services work to make it more efficient and more accessible to their um, population. 
And then how long do they typically spend in one spot? I suspect it's been a little bit um, interrupted by COVID, but what's the sort of historical length of stay? So usually it's it's a five-year period. So they go in for two years beforehand and do lots of work with the Ministry of Health preparing for the ship coming. Um, the ship is then there for about a year, and then they usually stay for about two years afterwards, carrying on that education and that um, that capacity building. Yeah, fantastic. Would you do it again if the opportunity arose? Yeah, definitely. definitely. <laughs> We're going to Sierra Leone next year, so I'm hoping I can get a slot on that. Oh, amazing. Um, and then coming back to the sort of case mix, did you encounter cases that you had never experienced before? Um, yeah, so I saw, I had a few patients with NOMA, which I remember reading about in textbooks as a student, but had never seen. Um, so that's a, it's a disease of poverty, basically. It's a mm. bacterial infection that causes, um, uh, eats away the, the flesh of the face. And so they need big flaps to fix the defects in the face. Um, and then the other things I saw were, were things that we see at home, but just much more advanced. Yeah. Um, so lipomas, breast cancers, um, uh, cleft lips, but in eight, nine, ten year olds, cause they weren't fixed as a, mm-hmm. as a baby, um, all enormous hernias that people have been walking around with for decades. So yeah. everything just much, much more advanced than we'd normally see. Yeah, absolutely. And, and then how did people uh, react when you said that you were going to Senegal? <laughs> um, a bit mixed. Some people were sort of like, oh, I've always wanted to do that. That's amazing. And then other people sort of, I think, thought I was a little bit crazy. Um, yeah, very, very mixed. <laughs> um, how did you sort of approach it with your family? How did you explain it with your kids? <laughs> um so my my kids bless them have been quite used to parents coming and going because my (laughs) my husband's work is is often abroad and and this isn't the first time I've traveled um as well so that they're sort of used to it and we we have a good system of making sure that we can um we can talk you know the ship has wi-fi so I was able to zoom and chat with them each day um and and they sort of they get quite excited at seeing what I'm up to and as asking me what presents I'm going to bring home. <laughs> I be, I was just thinking as you were saying that when, whenever I'm away from home, my kids love to for me to show them around on FaceTime where I am and I just think what a phenomenal thing you would have been able to show your kids. What a completely yeah, different... Showing them the corridors um, of window. <laughs> yeah, how incredible. Um, did you get any negative reactions from people thinking that it was a, not a good idea? Um I didn't. Um, whether maybe I don't know if anyone just kept that to themselves and didn't feel they should say it or <laughs> or not. But no, I didn't. I didn't get any negative responses. Um, I really like to talk to you a little about the details of what it's actually like. One of the things I think that is really unique about Mercy Ships is that it's actually accessible to so many of us, right? Like it's not like when you talk about colleagues that we've had that have done things like MSF which are typically much longer periods or any other sort of work that's typically much longer which feels like a much more significant thing to do to step out of your day-to-day commitments both professional but also personal this feels much more obtainable and tangible I think to so many more anaesthetists which I think is what makes it so incredible Um, so thinking about a sort of fleshing out what it's like actually in the day-to-day so maybe some of us can kind of picture and consider what it might be like 
you know, what sort of drugs did you have or more importantly, any that you didn't have? So I had most of the things that you would have at home. So I had, I had propofol, um, had a choice of muscle relaxants, opiates. We just had fentanyl and morphine. Um, and I think that was due to um, regulations and it, it just got a bit too complicated for them to have too many different opiates on board. Um, mm-hmm. I had antiemetics, antibiotics. Um, we had Sugamidex. Um, <laughs> pretty much everything you could think of was available. Okay, so that sounds pretty reassuring and really familiar. Then what about um, machine, what sort of machine setup did you have and then other types of equipment in terms of pumps or if you're doing regional and you know ultrasound and that sort of thing? Yeah, so we had a mind ray anesthetic machine. Um, we had a couple of pumps, but not uh, not Tiva pumps, so you could just run mils an hour on those. Um, we had an ultrasound machine for doing blocks. Um, there was capacity to run an art line if you needed to. Um, there were two post-op HDU beds that we could use if we needed. Um, you would then go from being the anaesthetist in theatre to being the anaesthetist running the HDU, but you had um, the um, equipment and the nursing staff for that. Um, I think that was, I can't think of what else you'd need. No, no, brilliant. And then what did the assistant to the anaesthetist role look like? Who was helping you? So they have two um, levels. They have anaesthesia providers and they have anaesthesia assistants. And the way that they work it, because obviously that's very different in different countries who provides anaesthesia, they have their anaesthesia providers are all physicians and anyone who's trained in anaesthetics who is not a physician is an anaesthesia assistant. So we had um, we had three anaesthetists on board, um, two of us running anaesthetics and one as the supervisor. And the supervisor is usually there for about a year. So they really know the way the ship works and they're that continuity. And they were, they were great as backup with anything that you weren't so sure about. Um, we then had, so we had two anaesthesia assistants. One was um, a nurse anaesthetist from the Netherlands who works independently in paediatric anaesthesia. Um, so she was amazing um, and a huge help with, like, I don't do a lot of kids. So it was great with smaller kids to have her there to help. Um, and then our second um, nurse anaesthetist was from Cameroon. Um, and it was really interesting having her there because she was actually there for her education to learn. Um, but a lot of the kit that we had was completely alien to her. She was used to working with hardly anything. She didn't, you know, she, she had never used entitled CO2 before. Um, she wasn't well. used to any of the imaging on the ventilator. She's used to just bagging by hand. So it was, it was a huge eye opener to me to, to be working with her and seeing how she would normally work and be able to teach her the way that we did things differently because of the equipment that we had. Yeah, that's quite sobering, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. And then what happened if there was a, a crisis, whether or not, hopefully you didn't have to employ this very often, but, you know, in terms of emergency response, and then if things were very poor, was there any option to transfer any patients or was the ship what you had? Um, so there wasn't really a, an option to transfer people. 
So they were very, very selective over who was operated on and very selective over what sort of surgeries they would do. Um, backup plans you had, uh, if you had a case that you thought was likely to bleed and needed a blood transfusion, they didn't have a blood bank on board, but all the crew members were the blood bank. So they would find a people who were a match for that patient and they would make sure they were on board. Um, and then you'd, you would give whole fresh blood if it was needed. Um, we had a once weekly fire and abandoned ship drill. Um, and they were very strict on the abandoning ship procedures. Um, and that was, we, yeah, we went through that quite rigorously. Mm-hmm. And so then how long would the patients typically stay on the ship post-op before then going home? Because there's obviously, um, you know, that bundle of care with that very high level care, which would be, I imagine, quite a large contrast to what they would be receiving when they returned to um, their homes. Yeah, so they they had an ability to keep people nearby if they needed to. So they would usually be discharged from the, the ward on the ship, but they had... Um, they had a centre in town that was their um, accommodation. So they had a lot of pre-op patients who were there in the centre and a lot of post-op patients. So especially sort of the orthopaedic patients that needed to come back and have ongoing physio for a while afterwards, they would stay in that centre so that they weren't taking up ward space on the ship. Um, But they would would stay there, they would keep coming back, and they usually... um, had a system so when the surgeon that same surgeon came back to do another block of surgeries later in the year he would be able to he or she would be able to do follow-up with those patients before they were discharged home yeah fantastic it sounds like an incredible process and an incredibly tightly run process that's obviously a very well-trodden path for them um, into which you can slot quite smoothly yeah, there was an enormous uh, spreadsheet on the wall of the theatre office with names and specialties and someone very clever was moving all of those pieces around. <laughs> and then finally, I think, do you have any advice for people that might already have been considering or perhaps have been listening to this and are now considering um, perhaps doing a stint with Mercy Ships, um, maybe in Sierra Leone? Um I'd just say if you're thinking about it, go and do it. It's It was fantastic. It's a great experience. Um, I think you regret not doing things. You don't regret doing things. So give it a go. There, there are resources out there if you want to um, learn things before you go. There's course, I know, uh, I think it's Anska runs a real world anesthesia course. And um, there's, there's other um, things online with lots of information to get an idea of what happens and speak to people who've been cool well thank you so much for your time today becky it's been such a wonderful insight and certainly an immense amount of food for thought and also mainly just inspiration um i really appreciate your time thank you thanks it's been lovely to chat and thank you to all of you for joining us on our final podcast for the year I really look forward to 2023 and bringing you a diverse range of topics from educational updates to financial planning to conflict resolution and many more. But first, a good old Kiwi summer. From my whānau to yours, merikirehimiti me te hape nu ia.